pleasure to welcome you to today's conference, Who's Afraid of Big Tech? Uh, anyone who has been paying even the slightest attention to recent news will have noticed that many of the country's most prominent technology and social media companies, such as Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, and Google, have been on the receiving end of an array of criticism. Uh, today, our guests will discuss some of these criticisms and consider a range of proposals. There are widespread concerns about privacy. Billions of people all across the world use social media sites, and in doing so, provide private actors with a gargantuan collection of intimate details. The Cambridge Analytica scandal highlighted how such information can be used, prompting calls for legislation and regulation. We also have concerns about uh, big tech, though, that go beyond social media. Uh, Google and Amazon also collect vast amounts of revealing information. One of my favorite quotes about uh, social media uh, is a quote from now former Google executive chairman uh, Eric Schmidt, who in 2010 said, with your permission, you give us more information about you, about your friends. We don't need you to type it all. We know where you are. We know where you've been. We more or less know what you're thinking about. But are the rest associated with all of this data sharing and collection overblown? If not, what steps can lawmakers and private companies take to mitigate them? So our first panel will, the first panel and flash talk will discuss these and other questions. The second panel will consider whether big tech companies are too big. The Trump administration and some Democratic lawmakers are interested in investigating alleged big tech antitrust violations. While there is bipartisan concern about monopoly, there are also worries that such antitrust enforcement would be inappropriate and could stifle innovation. Our last flash talk and panel will tackle online speech. There are efforts to further regulate online ads, which raise a host of free speech concerns. Allegations of anti-conservative bias in the larger social media sites have prompted discussions about content moderation and the role of companies such as Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube in our liberal democracy. Should these companies use the First Amendment as their guide? What are the risks associated with government intervention in online speech? So the guests on the stage today are, of course, not the only ones with views on these questions. And I urge all of you to take part in today's conversations by using the hashtag CatoTechnology. I want to remind everyone that this event is being live streamed and recorded. No food or drink is allowed in this auditorium. If you have to enter during a presentation, please use the second entrance down the hall uh, so as to minimize disturbances. Uh, and with that, I want to turn over to my colleague, Julian Sanchez, who will get started on the first panel, which is Big Brother in Big Tech. Thanks for that uh, introduction, Matthew. Uh, I am uh, indeed Julian Sanchez. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute focused on uh, issues of privacy and uh, digital civil liberties, uh, among others. Uh, to my left is uh, Ashkin Kazarian, uh, who is the Director of Civil Liberties at Tech Freedom. Uh, to her left, Alex Stapp, who is a freshly minted fellow at the uh, International Center on Law and Economics. And to his left yet again, uh, your far right, uh, Lindsay Barrett, who is a staff attorney and teaching fellow at the Georgetown University Law Center's uh, Institute for uh, Public Representation, uh, Communications and Technology uh, Clinic. Uh, I will forego the extensive recitation of uh, our panelists' impressive uh, curricula vitae, uh, since uh, uh, in this uh, wonderful connected world, you are all able to Google uh, details, uh, extensive personal information about all these people. Um, <laughs> so I, I want to begin by uh, picking up uh, where Matthew left off. Uh, it seems like a uh, more or less weekly occurrence that we read uh, some 
news story uh, about how uh, online platforms, or in some cases device makers, are uh, using or providing access to uh, individuals' private data in ways that uh, provoke popular backlash. Um, and yet at the same time, we find user behavior not uh, exacting uh, you know, a toll, uh, apparently, on those companies as people continue to uh, give up large amounts of personal information, perhaps in part because they're uh, not fully aware of how their information is being collected and used, and perhaps in part um, because it's simply difficult to understand what companies are doing uh, with that data, buried as it often is behind uh, impenetrable legalese in terms of service. Um, we've seen growing calls, including from, uh, in many cases, legislators who are normally fairly averse to uh, regulatory interventions. I think perhaps uh, as we've all become used to this ritual of a story, backlash, a company saying, uh, well, we take your privacy very seriously, we'll do better in the future, um, and it's the... Uh, uh, the pattern follows the uh, the old Smith's lyric. Uh, you know, they'll never, never do it again. Of course, they won't. Not until the next time. Um, so, uh, you know, as these calls for uh, what's often called baseline uh, privacy regulation grow, uh, we want to explore uh, one the extent to which there is a problem uh, that might justify regulatory intervention. Uh, what proposals uh, to try and uh, more robustly protect user privacy uh, are advanced, and uh, what some of the wrinkles and potential trade-offs involved in those proposals are. Um, so I want to start by just throwing to the panel um, a question of how do we think about this problem? We know um, people like me who are uh, privacy advocates uh, tend to uh, have a, a, a fairly high personal value they place on their, on their private information. Um, but people's behavior uh, in terms of you know, what they're willing to get to sites in exchange for free service um, doesn't appear to track you know, the, the answers they often give pollsters about um, how much they care. Um, so one to, question to set up here is, what are, the, what are the, the harms that we should be worried about in terms of the collection of personal data, and how should we interpret the fact that despite the sort of drumbeat of scandals, it doesn't appear to be altering user behavior. Is there a problem that needs solving? So I think, um, and you touched on this point before, uh, when we take behavior as the only kind of indication of what people want and you know, how, how we should understand the need for privacy legislation, I think we're going to go pretty far astray. Because, of course, you know, we're dealing with so many privacy policies each day. You know, there's no way. Even were we able to sort through the, what is it, eight or nine privacy policies that the average person encounters each day, you know, they're impossible to read, the company can't necessarily, or, you know, whoever the entity is doing the privacy policy, they can't always disclose the risks because they don't know them themselves. And then, oh, by the way, people are bad at evaluating risks. So when we talk about kind of the link between behavior and what people want in privacy, I think we we really have to understand the role that resignation plays and just the fact that we're all swamped in an ecosystem that we can't really do much, we can't really do much to act on whatever preferences we have. Right. And I think that's an important thing to always be aware of the privacy paradox. Um, and I agree that we have to look at both revealed preferences in, in user behavior and uh, stated preferences on these surveys. But I think uh, some surveys you don't get uh, to hear a lot about 
the National Telecommunications and Information Administration within the Commerce Department. They survey these things on an ongoing basis, and major concerns related to privacy and security risks have been decreasing slightly, but it's not increasing. It's relatively flat. Um, people avoiding online activity due to security concerns also decreasing at a slight rate. Um, and then uh, ITIF surveyed people and said, uh, in this trade-off context of if you get benefits for giving your data away, would you be willing to give you a piece of sensitive data away? Would you be willing to share biometric data, medical data, or location data in exchange for, say, um, better targeted medical, procedure, medical services or just better services in general or discounts? And 60% of people uh, said they'd be willing to share at least one piece of sensitive information. So I think when you recognize that you get benefits in exchange for this uh, information, you see the survey numbers change a lot. And then, of course, in revealed preference behavior, we have things like DuckDuckGo, if you want to use a private search engine that protects your privacy more than Google does. And you also have browsers that do the same. And frame, oh, sorry. That's OK. You can. Oh, no, I was just going to say um, the framing of these questions is important, too, because if you say, well, hey, wouldn't you like this nice, lovely benefit if you give away your health information, then most people will say yes. But then if you evaluate, OK, you know, what are, what are kind of the amorphous hopes of what we can do with medical information versus how we know it can be misused, that framing is somewhat different. Yeah, and I think we definitely want to discuss the proper framing here. And I think that gets closer to the reality on the ground because when you do give away your data, you do get free services uh, in return. So it's, it's pretty concrete in the present as well um, as, as you see in practice. And let me just jump in and not disagree with either of you, but say that, first of all, when we look at the surveys, um, it's a good thing that agencies do them because they're the closest to um, real life situations and seeing where there's harm and where's no harm and how consumers are being affected. But at the same time, these surveys, if they're on a macro level, um, they don't really give us any sufficient data to go off on. For example, even me personally, when if you ask me, I'm the person who emails every website that I want to delete my account from and bother them until they do that. But at the same time, I will sign up for any app you want me to if I need Wi-Fi in an airport. <laughs> it's, you know, depending on a day, depending on the situation, each consumer has their own needs. And uh, what we should focus on is the real harms that are done to the consumer. And that's why the system that we have, like the notice and consent system that exists, that was created in the 70s, obviously is not efficient enough for the internet in the 21st century. And right now, 2019 is the Super Bowl for privacy lawyers. And we should all really you know, gather our teams and focus and ask these hard questions to figure out what to do next. Right. And so I think you know a lot of you have gotten to uh, the heart of, of a common critique of the, uh, the the notice and consent model that governs uh, most dimensions of privacy protection. That is the idea that uh, the way your privacy is protected is that um, sites will offer you uh, some degree of specificity about what their practices are in terms of service. Uh, you know that's the thing that everyone pretends to read before they click sure, let me use the thing, um, you know, after skimming through but not actually reading any of the 10 pages of dense legalese. Um, and this is this uh, sort of consumer evaluation and consent provides uh, privacy protection. And I'm you know, inclined to say um, we all recognize that that is, um, for better or worse, not very meaningful, right? And most people are not um, particularly meaningfully informed. And there's, as, as uh, Lindsay alluded to, a fair amount of research suggesting that it's not even literally physically possible for most people to actually read 
um, the privacy policies for all the sites that they use. It would take a, you know, essentially a month of their year to, uh, if they were to actually just once a year read, uh, read all of those documents. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, how does, how does it sort of problematize um, the idea of consent when we sort of admit that practically speaking, um, the people who are agreeing to this stuff aren't reading it and don't understand what, what they're giving up. Um, I think it's a little bit too quick to jump from that to a particularly regulatory solution is, is a solution. Um, but, you know, is sort of the heart of the way we approach this now based on um, uh, an unrealistic conception of what a normal user can, can sort of accommodate, has bandwidth for. Absolutely. And I think with that acknowledgement that it's, it's simply not possible to sift through the thousands of times a day that um, someone asks us, oh, okay, are you okay with X, Y, Z, in order to do something like, hey, I have a work email I have to send at the airport, we have to understand in that context, okay, what is a, what is a baseline of uh, collection practices or use practices that just shouldn't be okay? You know, in, in other consumer protection contexts, we don't ask people to evaluate, oh, okay, you know, some people are okay with a certain amount of lead in their paint, and some people are okay with a certain amount of toxins in their coffee. We say, all right, you know what, we know that in these decision-making contexts, this is bad for people, and people are not able to evaluate, or the, or the you know, I, I don't know what kind of benefits there could be to lead in, in paint, but I... I want to say it, it was used for a while, and I probably should have researched it's this. Delicious. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> sweet, right? Yeah, um, yeah but all, all of the various, you know, uh, chemicals that, you know, we decide after a while, no, 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 maybe it makes paint thinner or, you know, dry more quickly, but, you know, toddlers probably shouldn't eat it. You know, that, that is similar to this context in that people are not in a position to evaluate, oh, hmm, what is the possibility that... By using by using a cell phone, someone is selling my location data to a bounty hunter. Sorry, I was just going to say the problem that we might encounter and fall into is, what if we assume there will be harm, but there is no real harm that we've seen? Let's say um, you move to a new city, and based on whatever activity you had online, certain platforms start giving you ads for housing and for furniture and for jobs. Is there real harm? Some people find it creepy, and I actually wanted to address that concept of creepiness because uh, I'm afraid that it drives the debate often these days, especially amongst people who are not privacy lawyers or policy experts. And yes, it is creepy, but it's also helpful. I think we keep forgetting how helpful, helpful it is and how our understanding of creepy changes with time. If anyone remembers caller ID debate when it used to be scary and people didn't like it and thought it was violation of their privacy. And nowadays I know that if I see my mother's name on my phone, I'm gonna pick it up in the middle of this panel because she was gonna assume I'm dead if I don't do so. And I'm very grateful to the caller ID law, you know, caller ID technology for doing that, even though it might be a little creepy. And, oh, sorry. and to follow up on Ash's point about harm, I think it's important to remember, and I'm going to kind of quibble with the framing of the question that Julian laid out here, is that, we, yes, we don't have federal comprehensive baseline privacy regulation in the United States, but we do have uh, sector and age-based privacy regulation that holds um, organizations and companies to a higher standard for those types of data. And I think this matches pretty well with when you see people uh, describe relative sensitivities of different types of data. So people are most concerned about 
Um, their medical data, their financial data, their educational data being leaked out. Well, we have things like HIPAA, FERPA, and GLBA to address those concerns. And we're also concerned about children's data because they don't have um, as much of a, a rational sense of using these services as adults, uh, we assume, then we have COPPA for that as well. So I think it's uh, a bit mistaken to say that we don't, that this is like the US, like the wild west of privacy. We do have uh, sector and age-based privacy policies that I think match potential harms that we see. Though at the same time, when, so for instance, housing ads, um, we want to consider kind of the incentives that the current actors in the ecosystem have in terms of how they might collect information and use it. So it, it can be great to get kind of location-based ads or, or whatever it is, but also Facebook is being sued for allowing advertisers to target um, people on the basis of, I think it was age, disability, and, and whether they're Spanish speaking for housing ads um, against the um, against the Fair Housing Act. So we both want to understand what's possible, what's valuable, and kind of what companies are rationally incentivized to do when they know that nobody's going to come knock, knock on their door and make them not do it. But we already have a system that will react to that, right? They're being investigated. Probably an agency or two are going to go after them. There's going to be probably a civil lawsuit also going after this. So anytime there is any practice that is unfair or deceitful, there will be a reaction to it. One can only hope, but uh, so uh, Julian mentioned that I'm, I'm at Georgetown's IPR, and we work a lot on children's privacy, actually. And it's, huh, it's fantastic because it is, it's an important area. You know, kids are not in a position to, you know, eat, as adults aren't in a position to be sifting through the thousands of decisions we have to make each day. Kids are not reading privacy policies. Kids are not, you know, able to make those kinds of decisions. And the fact is, when we're looking on kind of things to areas where we feel like um, kids are being advantage of, it is, there's more work than we could possibly take on in a lifetime. Because sure, COP is there, but the vast majority of companies put in a privacy policy, you know, and the privacy policy of a product that is you know, a glittery kitten, puppy, baby, whatever thing that is clearly targeted to children says, oh my god, no, only, only users 13 and over. We would never collect a children's data, never. And well, then you look at something like TikTok, which was swarming with kids, and wonderful that the FTC, you know, brought that settlement. For those, for those who don't oh, know what um, you're talking about. So uh, TikTok not is... Not the Kesha song. No. Uh, <laughs> possibly related. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a Vine clone, so a, a brief, um, brief videos that you kind of swipe through in a feed, and uh, a lot of kids using <clears throat> that platform, and they have been for four or five years. And again, Great that FTC brought that case, but there are all kinds of products where the same kinds of things are happening. So there's this fantastic interview with um, one of the co-founders of TikTok a couple years ago talking about, well, yes, there are kids on our platform. What do you expect us to do about it? There are tons of kids on Instagram, and you know, there are kids on Instagram, there are kids on Snapchat, there are kids on whatever you know product you want to name. And in this isn't just a vague concern of oh no, the kids are using technology. There's, we're talking about you know, shady actors that have no reason to not, for instance, send kids, in, excuse me, um, send kids information unencrypted, send, you know, violate COPPA by using behavioral advertising, which is something that we saw in an FTC complaint we brought against the Google Play Store. But here's where, sorry, here's where, okay, we already have a law that COPPA that protects you know, children's privacy. If someone violates it, 
laws are violated on a daily basis and all we can do is enforce them. We can't shut down the browsers or police every single online behavior to make sure it's not a kid that's on Instagram. My 12-year-old uh, sister is on Instagram and I'm sure if I try to take it away, we won't have a relationship <laughs> anymore. So there are definitely some kind of trade-offs when you say, okay, like there's a law, there are the rules, there's an enforcement, but it's not enough. Let's go to the next level. Let's do even more restrictions. Yeah, and just to follow up on that, I think we get, might kind of get a little myopic with policy solutions when we think this is an, an ideal trade-off between protecting kids and allowing people to use technology. Therefore, we need another privacy law. We need a new regulation um, from Congress. But also another way, as uh, Lindsay mentioned, is that they're currently enforcing these laws, just not enough to her liking, and maybe we can agree on that. But that means that we need uh, higher enforcement intensity, maybe more resources for the FTC if they're already willing to pursue these cases, but maybe they're understaffed or something. But it doesn't necessarily imply that we need new laws. So let's talk a little bit more about concrete harm. Uh, Lindsay alluded to, to lead paint. This is a, a kind of a category I, I like to think of as exploding toaster regulation. Um, that is, um, you know, probably the, the best case scenario for making our, for regulatory intervention is a case like an exploding toaster or you know, lead in paint where you've got a fact that is very difficult for the consumer to directly evaluate, you know, is this toaster going to explode? Um, but also you have an outcome that essentially, clearly everyone agrees is bad. Almost no one would sort of willingly and knowingly buy an exploding toaster unless they work in a movie prop department maybe. Um, and so it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't involve a very difficult trade-off to say, um, this is something that you would only agree to if you didn't really understand what you were agreeing to. Um, so it's, it's you know, a, a, an easier case to make to say, so the rule should just be, your toaster can't explode. Um, privacy is a little more complicated there because, because often you know, people have more diverse preferences, but also um, it's often a little fuzzier what exactly the harms are, which doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, but it is necessary to sort of articulate it because it's not necessarily as straightforward as, you know, what, what are the harms of lead paint? So what are we concerned about? We've heard people allude to uh, the potential for discriminatory practices, um, you know, targeting ads or offering housing on the basis of race or other uh, suspect characteristics. Um, but what are, what, what is sort of the downside? What are the problems we should worry about uh, as a result of, you know, companies like Google having uh, the level of detailed information about people we would normally associate with a police state? Those problems, Guy, I'll take that one. But, um, I think uh, on a baseline level, you can't know what's happening. If you don't know how your data is being collected and used, you can't be sure of how it's being used against you. So one, one of the things that stuck in my brain is there was a, um, there's an article about um, uh, period tracker apps. And one of them was ingenious enough to pitch to insurers that they could uh, that they could tell insurers when women are, uh, when em employees are thinking of becoming pregnant, which is horrifying to me because of how rampant pregnancy discrimination is. And again, despite the fact that there are laws in the books and, you know, that I think collectively, normatively, we would all say, you know, firing a pregnant lady, bad, because she is pregnant, bad. Um, so I think it's, it's both a matter of sort of, the opacity of the structure that we're working in and the fact that you can't bring an enforcement action, you can't sue someone, you can't do any of that if you don't know what's happening to you or why it's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and just, I think, the because we are in a sector-by-sector -sector system, sure, in, the, in these narrow columns, we have 
particular protections that are reactively enforced, you know, when they're enforced, but that leaves a lot of information uncovered. So, you know, Gina protects genetic information in certain contexts, but not, not that broadly. And uh, sure, sure, FERPA protects, uh, you know, the specific, however you define school records against disclosure in XYZ context, but then there was, um, I'm trying to remember, there's, uh, anyway, a test prep company that was selling school records or uh, selling students information because that doesn't fall under the category. So overall, I think there's a lot of ways in which data can be used in kind of shady ways, and you can't, you can't enforce against that if you don't know what's happening to you. As the only other person on this panel who can comment on the period app, <laughs> um, I would say that, yes, that is awful, and, but that's literally just driving into a discrimination. If they, want, they pitch that and if they went forward with that plan, they could be, you know, there will be enforcement against them. There is, there is no way that would be unnoticed. And this goes back to, you know, there are a lot of cases like this where Facebook's, Facebook gives ads to women who were pregnant and then had a miscarriage, and that's traumatizing for them. And obviously, these stories, they have a huge emotional impact on our whole society. But what also happens is that platforms, they adapt and they reshape their policies and reshape the way they do the ads and the way they serve them to certain customers so this wouldn't happen. Because at least in the quite few years that I've been working in this field, I've noticed how fast the responses of the companies to the public opinion, way faster than the responses to government action against them. I have probably a narrower set of concerns than Lindsay, but I, I, I try to look for things where there's, there's the likelihood of a market failure and therefore uh, a rationale for government intervention. And I think we're likely to see that in, in cases of uh, data security rather than data privacy. And so if you look at things like data breaches that are in the news where, and again, not just data exposures, but data breaches where a bad actor actually took sensitive data from a company without consent, uh, I think you see a misalignment of incentives there where companies like in the Uber case, where they had I don't know, 50 million records stolen, um, and they redirected the hackers to their official bounty program to report it as a bug, and they didn't disclose that for a while, um, and then were later sanctioned by the FTC uh, for that, that action. I think that's a case where clearly the user would likely never hear about that if the company didn't notify them at some point, um, and the company has an incentive um, to hide that information. So I think looking at data security practices, uh, maybe a breach notification rule, would make more sense, but I think on data privacy in general, people uh, manage their own trade-offs pretty well. What about concerns about, I mean, at the, at the sort of heart of the, um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, I think, was a concern, perhaps um, you know, not, not fully realistic based on sort of the current state of the art of the technology, but, but a concern, but a, a, I think, in principle, uh, reasonable enough concern about the use of private data for manipulation uh, in a way that implicates not just sort of individual harms, but um, civic harms in the sense that um, companies with enormous amounts of data about us may be able to sort of nudge, target, manipulate us in ways that we ourselves are not necessarily aware of, um, but uh, have implications for things like the integrity of elections. Um, how, how realistic are those concerns, do you think? Pretty realistic, um, I think. 
it can be tempting to say, oh, well, we don't know, for instance, we don't know, was it, was it the Russian trolls saying, you know, fomenting hate and bringing out both kind of replicating, you know, very real tendencies that people have and, um, and just creating it out of the blue, um, you know, because we don't know if that was the, the clinching point of what turned the 2016 election, then how can we say that manipulation is is a real problem, and I think that's setting the bar a bit too high. It's like talking, if we're talking about market failure, we can't say, oh, well, you know, people still use Facebook, therefore there's clearly no problem in our society with privacy, because there are all kinds of reasons why people need to, or just simply do, continue to do the things that they do. Um, so I think when we're talking about manipulation, we can talk about um, commercial manipulation, we can talk about more nefarious, um, like in, in voting, in um, various other uh, normative areas that people would have a problem with, uh, but it's very much a problem. I think we should uh, separate the two layers, though. I agree with you, this is too high level. When we talk about manipulation, there's commercial and then there's political. And then we have to talk about the political ad disclosures and the way they operate online and the way they should probably be a little bit more adjusted and developed, especially for the next election cycle. Um, but then we have to be very clear on what is manipulation and what is just advertising. Right? So if we take political out of it and talk about it at a separate panel or a separate whole conference, Matthew, um, <laughs> we can talk about, okay, well, is it manipulation that I'm getting ads for certain movies just because I buy online tickets for rom-coms or um, Marvel movies? Um, is that manipulation or is it just serving the customer? Yeah. I don't think anybody would. Yeah. Then, yeah. then what is manipulation? No, absolutely. And it's important to make sure that the definition is narrow enough because, right. you know, manipulating, if, if, you're, if you're setting a ceiling too broad, like, yeah, manipulating is trying to get someone to do something, like buy something. And, right. you know, that's, I think that it will be able to carve out a kind of an understanding of, all right, relying on, uh, people's vulnerabilities to get them to do something that is against their interest. You know, tr try and figuring out like narrow, narrower understandings of what is manipulation as opposed to hello, would you like to buy this thing? Yeah, and I think it's definitely important to keep these two things in distinct buckets. So we have our economics of privacy concerns and also these uh, distinct political concerns. But I think it's also important once we get into the political bucket to dive into the details and not get too panicked about these things if the details don't warrant it. So. Let's just make sure we reflect on the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, what they were essentially doing was collecting data on American voters to categorize them according to the big five personality traits. And so then they could better target political messaging and they were political consultants selling this information. But research from political scientists and cognitive psychologists tell us that the magnitude of change you're gonna get with these things is very small. It's hard to nudge people from a Democratic vote to a Republican vote entirely. So on the margin, maybe we're gonna have some very small effect but remember, this is a political consulting firm whose incentives is to say, we're the masterminds behind this election, we're the reason the outcome was different. But then if you look at the underlying research, it tells us that it's much harder and people are much more complex um, to get them to change their votes. And so that's vote changing. Because I mean, imagine if a hypothetical evil Facebook decides they want to change the outcome of an election, uh, they can pretty easily tell, you know, with a very high level of accuracy, who you probably are going to vote for. Um, and so uh, people who are going to vote the way they think is correct um, get a reminder in the morning that, it, you know, this is your nearby polling station. Uh, other people get a reminder that there's a great, you know, happy hour nearby or, uh, or just given news stories that 
uh, prime feelings of resignation and helplessness uh, that make them less likely to get out of bed and go vote. Um, so not, not essentially you know, change you from a Republican to a Democrat vote, but um, change your propensity to actually turn out. Um, is, that, is that a more realistic scenario? Yeah, because we, we saw it happen. <laughs> we don't know about, the, about you know, what toggles were happening, but Facebook has conducted tests, including on voting, and, you know, in, in, in there, kind of, we're trying to make sure that everyone goes out. We, I mean, there's, there's no need, or there's not necessarily a need to read any sinister, you know, my God, which voters were they telling to go out and vote? But also, we don't know. And, you know, other, other uh, experiments that they've conducted, again, we don't have a way of knowing, and I think... In my personal experience, so I've looked at the way Facebook classifies me and they know that I'm a foreigner living in America and other things about me. They still always ask me to go vote. And I'm like, I'm Russian. If I go vote, <laughs> I'm not going to jail. Go <laughs> um, so I think the, the algorithm is still not super like, specific to you. It's more high level, which makes it less um, damaging, first of all. And second of all, I just want to scale back a little bit and talk about vulnerabilities and what is vulnerabilities. I'm a woman. Is that a vulnerability? Definitely that information can affect my job applications, um, if I get into certain programs or not, many, many things. Just the way I'm paid, the way I'm treated online and offline. So yes, obviously, but at the same time, it's such a broad category that without having that information, a platform can really cater to your needs. Mm -hmm. So I think there is another conversation to be had about what is a vulnerability. If someone is a Bernie Sanders supporter, is that a vulnerability? I think yes. But it's all, you know, it's all very marginal. So let's... Uh, I just want to address Julian's point directly in this uh, thought, experiment, thought experiment about Facebook being the actor to directly nudge uh, people to vote or not to vote. If Mark Zuckerberg runs for president in 2020, I will be much more worried about this scenario. But as I see current incentives at play, uh, Facebook is a mass market platform. They have an incentive to be neutral, to address both sides of the aisle um, in American political speech. You see this um, continuously with the censorship of conservatives debate, and there's actually no real evidence for that because they have an incentive to keep conservatives on their platform as well as liberals because they want to sell as many eyeballs to advertisers. And if they didn't want to, there can be a separate Facebook. Didn't uh, Don Jr. want to create a Facebook for conservatives? They should do it if they want to because First Amendment and you can do and create platforms for whoever you want. Surprisingly, it's not going great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm shocked to hear. Um, it's, uh, Separate conservative internet, um, which I, I suppose some people would on both sides might think is a good idea. Um, so let's then sort of move from the problem to some of the proposed solutions, um, right? Uh, what do we think about those concerns? They've uh, prom prompted a, a range of uh, legislative uh, reactions at the uh, in the U.S. at the federal and state level, uh, abroad, uh, obviously already in terms of uh, most uh, well-known, the, the GDPR uh, in the EU. Um, I, I, I was hoping we could get sort of a taxonomy of approaches. To, so uh, on the premise that there is a perception of a problem requiring um, you know, some sort of regulatory response, um, what are the sort of the flavors of solution that we uh, are, uh, should expect to see under consideration? Before I punt this to Lindsay and Alec, I want to say, and probably we should have said it in the beginning, that privacy, and we talk about privacy as this one big thing, but it's not. It's like saying Spice Girls. You know, there are different parts of privacy that are completely, you know, um, 
in need of different regulation. There's data protection, like GDPR. There are um, other like privacy rights, and some people say that privacy is a human right. Some people say that privacy is a property right. We can get into that later. But privacy is not one single concept, and the information that is protected is not one single type of information. There's information that we share, our photos, our emails, videos. The posh spice. Right, the posh spice. <laughs> there is uh, the information about our activity online, scary spice. And then there is uh, the logical kind of explanation of number one and number two that leads platforms or whoever collects and has that information uh, to some assumptions about us. Um, that can be, I don't know, baby spice? Um, so there are different things. And so when we talk about privacy legislation, we should keep in mind that the, there are so many different uh, pieces of a puzzle that we're trying to regulate. And now I'm punting. Well, um, I think if we're going to taxonomize different approaches, uh, there have been a lot of a lot of people thinking about that and pouring money into that, and there's a bunch out there. Um, high level, uh, GDPR does kind of privilege privacy and, and data protection, both as a fundamental right. Uh, it's built on both kind of a normative desire to treat privacy as an important thing to protect and kind of privilege that above other concerns. Um, so we have that as a model, a bunch of individual rights, um, real, real enforcement to back it up, um, expansive jurisdiction, all of that. Um, on the kind of US scrambling to, my god, what are we going to, <laughs> CCPA is bearing down on us. Uh, we have that coming in the rearview mirror. Um, there have been a bunch of state bills kind of emulating part of CCPA. C part CCPA. Of, oh, I'm sorry. The, uh, for the Cal God, California Consumer, consumer Privacy. Oh, there we go. Um, and should we? Well, we'll yes. get to that. And it's actually, no, because you know, we should in a, in a minute probably explain that in a little more detail. So for those who are not already steeped in this stuff. Yeah, but. and then a bunch of different kind of uh, approaches bubbling up. So we've seen kind of. Um, it's bills that um, strengthen the enforcement side of privacy. So that's um, Ron Wyden has a great bill um, that would, for instance, in certain uh, certain uh, circumstances, hold individual executives at companies responsible. Which I think, and um, in in the TikTok case I mentioned before, um, commissioners uh, Chopra and Slaughter filed a, a concurring statement saying that they think that that's something that we should look at. Um, another bill is the Data Care Act, which is um, Brian Schatz and 14 other senators, which would apply a more information fiduciary idea to data collectors. It's, I, I, I think he kind of said, oh, it's information fiduciary-like. It's not quite the same as the theory that uh, Jack Balkan and Jonathan Zittrain have put forward. Um, and then there are, there are a couple other, there, there's a lot of other bills um, that off the top of my head, I couldn't rattle off. But yeah. I appreciate Lindsay giving that. So it's, that you can see there are many different approaches that are being taken around the world today. But I think one thing, that, a common thread that you see in many of them is that you have this essential, essentially a privacy bill of rights. And so they enumerate um, different particular rights. And I think we can just run through a few of them because they all sound good in theory. Um, but I think we need to be careful about the costs and benefits of each associated right. And you see these appear in both GDPR and other bills around the world. Um, so right of access. If a company has data about me, I have a right to access it and ask them what data they have. Um, the downside of that is if my account gets hacked, the hacker has the exact same right and they can export all of my data. We've already seen this happen with GDPR in Europe. 
right to be forgotten. So if I want to kind of erase certain sensitive information about myself from the internet or from a particular company, I have a right to be forgotten. But then we also have to think about who has the highest incentives to exploit this feature. And we see that scammers are using it and people who have been convicted of crimes to kind of erase the, the trail of, of their misdeeds. Um, data portability. So if you have data at one company, this is in particularly, people think it's important with social networks. If I can export my data from Facebook to a, a new social network, I think it's important to keep in mind that the Cambridge Analytical scandal from another lens is looked at as having too much data portability. A third party took your data out of Facebook, um, as well as the direction of portability doesn't get discussed enough because, because startup companies will be creating new data and then Facebook will be able to have you import that from the startup to Facebook as well. So we're not sure the direction of, of movement there. And then finally, the last one I want to point out is the right to opt out. Um, in many cases, we already have a right to opt out in the United States, but the key differentiator you see in many of these privacy bills is that once you opt out, the company is required not to discriminate against you as a user. Um, but as we know, many of these services are free to use, and that's exactly because of all the user data that's contributed to the platform, so they can provide ads. And if certain users opt out, it's a clear uh, and classic free rider problem, where some users are subsidizing the privacy of others to use those services. So I just want us to keep in mind, as we hear these rights, they sound really good, um, but there are costs to each of them. And to kind of uh, continue what you both were saying, I think a framework that we believe is the right way of thinking about it and structuring this privacy debate in 2019 is, okay, what are the rules that we are all 100% sure should be there? You know, the ones that are the bright lines that we all are going to not cross. And the, the, those can be in a privacy national legislation. And then we say, okay, what are the standards that uh, should be in place that we all also agree on and use when we decide um, case by case where is the violation of privacy rights and where there is not. Um, so I think that um, in uh, kind of in conjunction with enforcement um, will be a really good way for United States to move forward with um, updating our privacy laws while also not just copy-pasting European approach that obviously applies to A, their legal system that's very different from American common law system, B, their political views and their political history that's very different from American history, and um, C, just the way the enforcement works in both uh, kind of regions is so different that every time you try to implement and copy-paste something, it's, it's going to just break your own system, uh, which is what we see in CCPA, because not only it took a lot of things from GDPR, it even went further, and that's why we're all, you know, in a rush to talk about privacy and in a rush to pass something on a national level, because even groups that are more on the left of this issue, I've heard them agree, maybe not in public, but in private, but also in public, um, that CCPA is going to break the internet. Um, so this actually, let's, let's, let's maybe dive into that a little bit. Uh, so a couple of people have alluded to California's uh, consumer privacy legislation, which will sort of have uh, restrictions that kick in uh, uh, starting in, I think, 2020. Um, and uh, one reason I think we're seeing a lot of legislators and even tech companies now um, very quickly making their peace with the idea of federal privacy legislation is uh, the idea that um, sort of state state alternatives are already uh, in place, are already going to kick in in ways that are um, uh, the companies find uh, 
extremely onerous, and they would rather have that legislation preempted by uh, a federal approach that at least provides a single, uh, I think, you know, as they would prefer, um, uh, less, uh, less, uh, less restrictive standard across the board. Um, is there a case, um, you know, just sort of on, on I guess, sort of dormant commerce clause kind of federalist grounds um, for saying, well, if states are going to act um, and we're going to have a kind of 50-state quilt of different restrictions, um, it would be better to have a federal, you know, a, a single federal rule? I mean, it's going to be a Black Mirror episode on January 1st, 2020, if this happens. Because not only um, big companies, here's the thing, big companies can always adjust. Big companies hired thousands of lawyers, and the big tech adjusted to GDPR in no time. They can throw money at the problem, and it goes away. Uh, what will happen will, will that mom-and-pop shops, e-commerce, websites that are nonprofit, websites that actually help um, facilitate discussion and free speech will be the ones that are hurt because you don't have a team of lawyers uh, complying, restructuring the way your business or just your website or your platform operates. And either we're going to have a separate internet and companies who are going to decide, okay, I'm not going to work in California, I'm not going to work with California residents, and then California residents getting VPNs to try to actually get those services, um, or we're going to just be, you know, another situation that might happen is California's just, California law is going to become the law of the land because everyone will be like, well, let's just do it. And then, again, small businesses and e-commerce is going to suffer, and consumers too because of that. Consumers are going to be so confused and just lost in this huge amount of rights that they're getting. Um, I would also like to say that just the California law itself was passed in not just a rush, in basically a blackmail type of situation that I personally don't believe is a democratic process of passing such crucial law. And um, I hope that we can all figure out some way to preempt that Black Mirror episode from happening. Just to, to reduce the confusion uh, in, right. in, in the room, at least, does someone, does someone want to volunteer to kind of give a, a, a more concrete sort of rundown of what is in the CCPA? No. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Let me just say, like, there are things like, um, you know, what information the company has on you. They have to have, like, databases for separate types of information. You you have a right to know why they have that type of information. You have a right, not only you, but like other organizations can sue on your behalf, I believe. And the thing about California law is also that it's like 3,000 like pages or something. I tried last night to read it again, and I just gave up. And that's why all these wonderful privacy experts also don't want to even get into it, because right. none of us actually think, none of us think it's really that great, right? I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I was on a train. I, I've had a big week. But um, no, I, th I think we, we can also talk about kind of the, there's the content of the California law, and then there's also preemption writ large. So when we're talking about a baseline um, privacy, like some, some future hopefully magical federal privacy law, of course, you know, it'd be lovely if there were a privacy law that we could all agree on and you know, we could all go home and be happy. Um, but there isn't any inherent virtue in passing one single standard if it's not better than what we already have. And another, um, a couple important points to keep in mind are, one, 
you know, companies have always dealt, you know, now, now we're talking about, my God, the crazy patchwork, but companies have always dealt with this, with this patchwork. There are 50, 50 data breach notification laws. And, you know, the vibrant internet that we know today grew up in that, you know, in that, in that chaos. So uh, there's that to consider. And we also want to keep in mind when we're talking about kind of the differential impact of regulation on different sizes of companies, we don't want to get to a point where that argument is used as the basis for no regulation at all, because that's the logical extension of it. Um, with, the, with the GDPR in particular, we've seen um, various ways that business have coped. So for instance, uh, the New York Times switched to contextual uh, advertising, which, which actually works under the G, which complies with the GDPR, and they saw their revenues go up. Mm. So I think to some extent, the arguments that um, well, my God, if we pass a new law, then we couldn't pass, you know, the, the small businesses will immediately flounder and die is probably not um, the most realistic assessment of what will happen. And I think um, when we're talking about preemption, we need to keep in mind that one, the, the crazy patchwork is what we've always dealt with. And we don't want to preempt just for the sake of preempting. But the difference is, sorry. So the difference is with data breach laws, the 50 data breach laws, only thing companies need to know is what state the user is in and then just notify them about a data breach. It's not that hard. With privacy, the way California law operates, you would need to restructure your whole system. And never think about the GDPR point you made. Yeah, companies saw a revenue up because a lot of new companies couldn't come to the market. Yeah, and I think uh, I just want to emphasize that Julian asked three supposed privacy experts to describe on the record what is in CCPA, and we all hesitated because it was written in less than two weeks uh, and is co evidently contradictory in many different places. So going on the record and saying, well, it says this or doesn't say that is, is risky. And I think just to make that concrete, uh, the opt-out provision that is in GDPR uh, is also in CCPA, um, but it, we can't tell yet whether it's non-discriminatory or discriminatory. So in one place, it says that if a user opts out of data collection, they have to be given the same exact services as other users. But then in a different place, it says that if a user opts out of data collection, they can be given discounts. And I can, you know, free services can be contrived as a discount in many different ways. So um, there is obviously going to need to be fixes to California's uh, law before it goes into effect next year. Um, but also, it's, it's important to keep in mind why I think Julia mentioned that some tech companies are coming out in favor of these laws, especially federal comprehensive privacy legislation, is because they're global tech companies. This is, these are the Apples, the Facebooks, the Googles. It's because they've already invested billions of dollars and millions of hours complying with GDPR, and they can just port that system over to the United States for relatively low cost. So it's in their self-interest to do so, and their smaller competitors who haven't already been in compliance with GDPR um, won't be able to do so as easily. So this is what we would call the Spotify model for uh, that California law would create. So Facebook, let's say, potentially would have, or whatever new website, like the next Facebook, would say, you pay $5 and you get to see your grandma's po posts, and then you pay $10 and you see your mom's posts, and then you pay 15 and you see your friend's posts. And like, it will be like a subscription model. And I'm not saying a subscription model is a bad thing, but when you talk about information, it's different than like getting services for a subscription. And then just um, to, as a final asterisk, one thing that we should also keep in mind when we're talking about kind of the, the objectives that we hope privacy laws will have, we obviously want to keep in, keep in mind, you know, what is going to entrench the, the behemoths and what is going to make it difficult for 
um, new models that Facebook can then, you know, clone and, and copy and, you know, RIP Snapchat, et cetera. But um, we also want to keep in mind, you know, privacy laws are intended to uh, deliver privacy rights, and small businesses can violate your privacy, too. Actually, I want to say, just diving into the weeds in a couple things. Um, like you talked about sort of a free rider problem with respect to um, regulations requiring services to be provided to people who choose not to provide their information. But it occurs to me, I, I free ride uh, pretty egregiously in, insofar as I use uh, plugins like Ghostory that um, block ad tracking, uh, as I'm going to sites. I'm visiting a lot of sites that um, have a revenue model that is based on showing ads, uh, and I've chosen not to look at those ads and indeed to deprive them of information about my conduct. Uh, and that's a sort of non-regulatory private uh, solution that that uh, nerdier you people like me. Have mode to look at New York Times articles? Uh, I, I plead the fifth. <laughs> no comment. Um, uh, no, I actually I, I subscribe to the New York Times. Don't ask about the Washington Post. Um, uh, but so you know, I mean, is is that like as a practical matter, we already have substantial ability to free ride by depriving companies of information that their revenue model to some extent dep uh, depends on. I think. It's uh, you know, the companies sort of seem to be surviving mostly because not that many of us do it. Um, in practice, yeah. is that is that a um, a kind of threat to the lifeblood of the digital economy? Yeah. Well, I think I'll leave it to the moral philosophers to decide how bad that action is really in a free ride off of uh, these news services. I think it's important to keep in mind that news services do charge a monthly subscription fee after you get past the paywall, which there currently is no option for a Facebook or Google for that option. So. Maybe if free writing increases with laws like GDPR and CCPA, uh, then we'll see a move to a more paid model. And the, again, that's just higher cost to consumers uh, in the end, at the end of the day. I think we should also, you know, there, we should also maybe hesitate to just characterize all, using all kind of ad blocking services as uh, free writing. So there's all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't want every company under the sun. So I use Ghostry as well. And one of the reasons that I use it is it blows my mind to see the kind of the like just volume and range of trackers that will follow me on various sites. So I think in if we're characterizing using ad blocking to, tools as a free rider problem, we have to have to think it's a problem if the internet isn't usable in an enjoyable way. Like if we're we're talking about um, you know people with attention problems who are being battered with you know autoplay video ads every time they try to read, like that's also a problem. But it's also of a difference between us making a private choice of using those extensions and technology versus um, government saying, okay, you web browsers, you built into you know, your technology those things. So all the users just by default like, don't see ads or don't get tracked. Uh, there's a difference between government fully reshaping the market and users making a choice, and enough users making a choice that the market reshapes itself. Yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind that we're discussing currently available free tools to protect your privacy that thousands and thousands and thousands of people use. Um, and beyond that, Apple um, explicitly pitches itself as a company that protects its users' privacy because their business model is aligned with it. They sell you hardware, they sell you services. Uh, and so if you would like to pay for a more private experience on your mobile device or on your computer, you can go to Apple for that and then use Ghostery and use other services. Well, this, this, I feel like this begs a kind of Anatole France response, right? The law on its majestic equality prohibits the rich as well as the poor from you know, begging in the street and sleeping under bridges. Used iPhones exist, Julian. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, 
a great data extraction opportunity. Um, <laughs> so a thing a couple of people have touched on is um, a kind of potential intersection here with um, the level of competitiveness in the market. Um, a lot of the folks who are concerned about uh, pro, you know, the privacy implications of data being collected by firms like Google and Facebook um, are, in a sense, concerned about it as one dimension of a broader concern about the dominance of these uh, handful of platforms, uh, at least in the sort of English-speaking market. Um, but there's also been suggestions that I think are plausible that um, a lot of the kind of regulatory interventions we're talking about are um, plausibly will have the effect of um, making it more difficult to compete with them. Um, these are, in a sense, companies that already have um, a kind of special ability to extract consent from users. Um, right? Facebook and Google already have your eyeball at their portal um, in a way that other targeted advertising firms, as a rule, don't. Um, is the, do we think there is a tension, potentially, between um, sort of the regulatory intervention and concern about the dominance of a small number of platforms. Um, and on the flip side, how much of our concern about privacy is in part a concern about people not, you know, not really having a choice between uh, a lot of different options uh, that would allow them to express a preference for greater privacy? I think that's absolutely a concern. So one thing that I'd highly recommend, if you haven't already read it, um, Kashmir Hill at uh, Gizmodo did this. Cash this, very well. Yeah, well, she did this um, fabulous series of actually trying to extricate um, the big five tech companies from her life. And as you'll see, it is comically, unfortunately, very difficult. Um, so I think when we're talking about um, kind of the realistic uh, possibility of people being able to make choices based on um, what, what they think companies do with their data. We have to talk about how possible it actually is. Um, and I think also it's important to remember, at the, again, at the end of the day, you know, differential compliance is an important thing to think about, but small businesses can also violate your privacy. Yeah, I think I just want to point out that Cashmere Hill's piece uh, series, which is great, can be viewed from a different lens to where these companies provide very valuable services to people for low or no cost, and so it's why you see them around and so um, omnipresent in your life. But it is a concern. I want, I want to maximize choice for users as well. If, if you really want to opt out of, of big tech, that should be an option. And I think it's, we need to be clear that there is a direct trade-off between privacy regulations and competition in the market. So for the reason that the traditional compliance costs are large and fixed, so the big players have the lawyers and they can afford to comply, that's one reason there's a trade-off. Um, but it goes beyond that. I think Julian's point, we need to be very clear about the difference between first-party ad networks and third-party ad networks. Facebook, Google, they're a first-party ad network because they have a one-to-one -one relationship with the users, and they're going to get consent every time. So GDPR really entrenches them in the market, um, and that same thing will happen in the United States. We already have data on this. Um, in, the, in the EU, uh, third-party ad networks have lost 18 to 32% of their market reach in the first six months after GDPR. Google, Facebook, Amazon, they've seen their market reach go up because they have those first-party relationships. And if that's a trade-off we're comfortable with to get more privacy regulations, then I think we should um, just be aware of that trade-off as we're making it and not kind of deny it. With a, no, please. With a 2020 coming up, um, big tech is going to be one of the main issues on every platform in each party. So my question just is, I get it, like tech industry was developing. It's not like a junior anymore. It's a 
big adult industry, hence we're going and asking hard questions. But also, have you ever tried getting out of a bank system or the insurance system? Can someone try to live without those? It will be very difficult to fully uh, operate in our society without them. And honestly, I'm more this, I don't trust banks. I don't trust insurance companies. They have a lot of my personal data, and I don't know what they're doing with it either. And well, if, if the argument is, you know, Facebook should be no more regulated than banking and insurance, no. <laughs> no. Facebook is probably not very happy with it. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is uh, there are other industries that have similar kind of, you know, weight on it. And um, the difference with technology is it's actually something that is pushing our society forward, and it's something that giving people with disabilities opportunities. It's something that's giving people uh, who live across the world from each other an opportunity to connect. It's something that's giving countries that have uh, tyrants um, governing them a chance to get democracy and organize. So we can't do the same thing we do to the banks, to the technology. And also, to close my point, towards MySpace and Yahoo. Um, as a... As a, as a um Kind of, before I turn to, to questions from the audience, I just sort of want to consider whether there are other options. Um, I think um, a lot of us would, sort of would agree that the, the, the current model involves people very often agreeing to, to terms they don't understand very well. Um, they may be surrendering more privacy than they mean to um, and maybe getting benefits in return, but, but maybe not reflecting their ideal preferences. Um, at the same time, there are downsides that we all seem to acknowledge to uh, the regulatory approach is sort of on offer. Um, I've sort of always viewed this as essentially a kind of UI, user interface or user experience design problem, um, right? So fundamentally the problem is, at some level, um, it is very difficult to present users with control over their, both information about how their data is used and control over it uh, in a way that's sort of salient to them um, and, and prompts good decisions and doesn't just overwhelm them with checkboxes. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of wondering if there are approaches people kind of envision or can, you know, have seen that they think uh, provide an opportunity for improving on uh, sort of our, our, our current, you know, click accept and, and, and pray model um, uh, that, that also sort of reflect the, the range and diversity of, of uh, people's concern about, about privacy and, how, and their willingness to share data. I think it's, I mean, there's been a lot of work in this area because, again, like the, just the way that kind of the layout of a website, the, um, uh, the way that kind of you interact with the environment you're in can very much shape the decisions that people make. Um, I haven't seen anything that I think is you know, the, uh, any kind of silver bullet. There's been um, great work um, uh, trying to automate um, privacy policies and kind of minimize that process, knowing the decision fatigue that people um, encounter. And there's, um, Paul Isis is one. Um, there are a couple of various like browser extensions. Um, there's a great project over at Carnegie Mellon doing a ton of work on this. Um, and I think those are, those are fabulous. Those are important and we need them. Um, they're not they're not a replacement for a curb on exploitative practices, but they're they're really important. Yeah, and I think uh, I like Julian's way of framing this as a user interface problem because 
Uh, just imagine every service you use on the internet and you go to the privacy tab on the home screen and then you go to the control panel. People have a wide range of preferences about the level of granularity they want to be able to control on that. And because these are mass market platforms, there's a single pane. And so they're only going to hit probably the median person for their preference for control over um, their privacy. And so I think the best solution here is competition and choice. So having more platforms that are targeted towards different levels of privacy preference. And in this case, that means that we need to be very concerned about the unintended consequence of comprehensive privacy regulation that reduces choice and entrenches the incumbents further. I think user experience is crucial. Um, and in my personal experience, um, Google's privacy tab is very helpful. You just go and you're like, don't track my, what I watch on YouTube and don't track what I Google. It's pretty straightforward. Um, users, a lot of the users, my kind of problem with this is they don't even know what kind of privacy rights or privacy um, little circumstances there are that they can control or that apply to them and in which ways. So I haven't seen it. I don't think it is possible, at least right now, to have a comprehensive overview of every single thing that can happen to you online and then a tool to control that. Um, and that's why we should have you know, bright line rules and we should have standards um, that we can hopefully all agree on that can kind of guide the discussion and guide the user experience. So let's, uh, since we have only a few minutes left here, turn to the audience. We have some folks. Uh, 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 coming around, um, I uh, would uh, ask uh, folks to uh, first uh, uh, give us your name and uh, any affiliation you choose to or refrain if you prefer to remain anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and please keep your questions to a sentence or two, uh, you know, the span of a single breath, perhaps, and uh, uh, you know, elevate your voice at the end to indicate uh, an interrogative as opposed to a disquisition. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's uh, start uh, there, I suppose, since you already have the mic. I know. But, uh, so I'm Jonathan. I work at the Glover Park Group doing research on a variety of issues and trying to understand this one more. Um, my two questions to keep in one breath is, how do you solve the business-to-business -business issue in this market? Because we've been talking about it from the consumer or government angle, federal, state, but a lot of the incentives are business-to-business. -business. Um, and the second question connected to that is, the implication in the framing of consumer versus government is, right, you pay nothing. But the business's incentive is then they take your data and sell it. So it's actually probably worth more than being free, given the business-to-business -business model, because they consistently make more money off you. Right? That's what banks do with you when you put a dollar in, right? So how do you solve this business-to-business -business issue? And the second question is, is your data actually worth more than being just free? Like, is there a monetizable amount that you deserve for what you're giving them? And do you have thoughts on that? Didn't someone recently do the research on, and it was like $26.50 per person? Um, Sounds high. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> it's very, it's I'm very just, um, that's, that's very deep philosophical, eco economical, and social questions that I don't know if I can answer in like a minute. Um, but I think it's important to kind of go off of what is the harm? Because if someone is making money off of you, while I mean, so what? <laughs> yes, I think I think to, to kind of rephrase your first question, I assume you're referring to data brokers, where like the profile is being created about you and it's being sold between businesses. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely, a, it's an important point and one that wasn't discussed in terms of drawing this distinction between uh, relationships that the user has directly with a company or these third-party relationships that you're not even aware are going on. Um, I see the potential there for more of a market failure, but also I want to just keep in mind the benefits of these things. So oftentimes, the state is being used to market things to you. That feels icky, but it's also being used to prevent fraud. So banks use these data profiles a lot to prevent financial fraud. Um, and you, in the 23andMe example you bring up, that's how we're catching serial killers now. Um, it's also how we're going to be using um, the data to... Cure cancer. Yeah, to create genetic uh, targeted medicine. And so I think there are huge benefits that we need to keep in mind. And I think small incremental reforms, like I know that Tim Cook proposed, because like right now you can go to every individual data broker and ask them to delete your profile and not collect data on you. But it's a, it, is a, it is a cumbersome process and it's difficult to do. I reckon it. So the option is there, but creating something like a centralized exchange where all these, these data brokers um, are required to make it simpler for you to opt out, I think is something that we might be open to. Um, but we also need to recognize the benefits of having these profiles in public. Well, and I think another important thing about kind of the business-to-business -business side um, is it's not as though because the business that you are, that the user is working with is then selling or, or sharing or whatever, you know, words we want to use, um, your information to somebody else. It's not as though you have, you're not implicated in that. I, I think that there can be a tendency to say, oh, well, then, you know, why would you care? Of course you care. Um, and, you know, making sure that consent whenever it's obtained is actually uh, informed and understands where your data is going in this giant ecosystem is mm. really important. Is that, I mean, but is that, this is, I think, something Helena Scannon has written, uh, not Helena Scannon, sorry. Helena <laughs> Scannon, a Scannon Center fellow. Uh, uh, Helen Nissenbaum um, has, has written uh, sort of compellingly about that just the, 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 the back-end data flows are so complex that it is, really just not feasible for people to have any real understanding of, of how that works. Um, that, um, you know, essentially either, you know, you can have a, a binary switch that says, you know, no or yes, but the idea that the individual consumer is going to understand the contractual relationship between, you know, a platform and 50 different other entities they're sharing data with um, is, uh, is sort of excessively demanding. Right, but the second there is harm, FTC comes in, right? Uh, one can only hope. <laughs> uh, they don't seem to be doing a ton of uh, coming in that much all these days. But, um, and I think the other thing to keep in mind, I lost my train of thought. I'm so, so sorry. sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, but I, I agree that maybe we need to look at uh, staffing resources at the FTC, but I also wanted to, we have some data on this. The FTC has taken more than 500 enforcement actions on privacy and security related issues since 1998. Um, so they, they are taking action. I think Something that could potentially change this debate, I think, significantly is that the FTC still has an ongoing investigation into the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal, and there are early reports that this could be a multi-billion dollar fine. So I think the, the jury is still out on um, what the FTC is actively doing. And when you say 500, it means there are 500 cases that all the companies hopefully follow. You know, the decisions that were made in those cases, companies are like, okay, I should not do X now. And then that adjusts the landscape. 1998 was also a while ago. 500 is also a lot. <laughs> so let's uh, let's uh, see if we have uh, any further questions. Uh, in the front row. 
Yes, uh, thank you for an interesting talk. Uh, my name is Stephen Keat. I'm a retired State Department official, and also in my time at the State Department, amongst other things, I worked in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. So I know for a fact that I'm on a lot of Chinese, Russian, et cetera, databases. Uh, I also have a pretty good idea of what the US government is capable of gathering. Right, so looking at what companies are doing, which is what you're addressing today, and looking at government's roles, I'm quite frankly not very confident in relying on governments to protect us. And I think that in the end, it comes down to us as individuals to protect ourselves, with the exception being people like minors and people who are incapacitated, where you might want to be looking to their parents to protect them. So this is a question. I would like you to comment on that, please. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think, we're, we're talking about pretty difficult problems to tackle. I think we can absolutely talk about how the government has uh, failed to safeguard its, its own information, you know, OPM. Um, we can talk about kind of the reticent enforcement, whatever, whatever you want to talk about. Um, but at the same time, I think saying, well, you know, everybody's bad at it. Let's hope that individuals can do better, I think is kind of, Forgetting about how how difficult it is really for anybody to, as we were talking about, you know, we're in an ecosystem where you're swamped with how, however many privacy policies a day. We don't know what every business that is collecting our information because it might not even be the one that we're contracting with. You know, there these are risks that are so far beyond both individuals' ability to kind of allocate risks and to control or or change them, even if they are aware of what the risks are. So I. I agree with your frustration with uh, governments failing to protect privacy and companies failing to protect privacy, but I don't think saying, oh, well, people just have to go out and forge for themselves is a good solution. So the OG big brother, thank you for that question. Julia and I both work on surveillance reform, and I think it's a great question to highlight the difference between companies and the way they handle privacy rights and the way, the way they handle uh, our information versus government. I believe that uh, we have way more trouble trying to get anything out of a government and any reform and any transparency or fairness or process or checks and balances into the government process than the mechanisms us um, everyday people have and power we have over companies. So, Julian, you want to? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I would just note that, um, right, as, as uh, folks may not know if they're not steeped in surveillance, one of the um, one dimension of concern about platforms is that under sort of current Supreme Court jurisprudence, uh, it's been uh, attenuated a little bit by some recent decisions, but um, data in the, broadly speaking, data in the possession of these platforms um, loses substantial, uh, substantially its Fourth Amendment protection under a doctrine that holds that you sort of assume the risk of disclosure and therefore waive your privacy interests and information that you've uh, permitted a third party corporation to retain. And so uh, you know, law enforcement and intelligence agencies um, are delighted to have this trove of information that they're able to get with uh, usually much less stringent legal process than a probable cause warrant. Uh, and so one dimension of this is both um, it is very difficult under current law to kind of provide information to a company without also, in effect, giving access to the government under a, a greatly diminished standard. Uh, and also that governments themselves seem to have a tension in their interests. We, you know, on the one hand, we have 
these proposals for greater privacy protection being bandied about. At the same time, um, you know, we have calls for stricter data retention, right? The, the most privacy best practices include the idea that you purge data when you don't have a need for it any longer. Uh, at the same time, law enforcement agencies would very much like if platforms were hanging on to data longer for their own purposes. Uh, do we have time for one more question? Two minutes? One more question, and let's see if we can slip, uh, slip one in. Hi, my name is Robert Benton. I work with uh, the Counter Extremism Project, which is about bad content online, but this is a completely separate question. Um, and my question is, you know, as, as someone who thinks about free markets and appreciates them, um, I hear us talking a lot about, you know, the, the way that different regulations could harm small businesses. But if we take a step back, isn't this more about aligning incentives? One of the reasons maybe we don't have a central place to go and make big privacy decisions online is that the online community has no incentive to offer that. You know, and if we change the incentives to say, you know, you do have a responsibility to manage our privacy better, um, don't you expect that some really smart people in Silicon Valley are going to start a new company that says, hey, if you pay me two or three dollars, I'll fix this problem for you. Or from the GDR perspective, there are new companies uh, popping up, as I understand it, that will help small companies comply better with the GDPR um, regulations. So it's almost like you change the economic incentive, and then you let technology and you let uh, commerce take over, and companies come to fill that gap so that they can bridge the space between the small companies and the GDPR. In the interest of saving time, I'm just going to refer to you to everything I said before and say that nerding harder is always just kind of a default setting for Silicon Valley and technology companies, and they do react to the incentives. Us having this conversation is an incentive for them, and the California shot clock is an incentive for them. Yeah, and I would just, I would just break this into two separate answers, one on like the data brokers business-to-business -business level. Um, I believe the way Tim Cook lays it out, this would be a pretty simple exchange that wouldn't require tech geniuses to build. Um, but in practice, that we'll see how that works. Um, but then on the uh, user-to-business direct one-to-one -one relationship, I think companies already have an incentive to protect your privacy and give you privacy control in line with privacy demand. And so insofar as you change the incentives with a law, I think that's another way of saying imposing costs on users and being misaligned with their uh, natural interests. I think we also... I hope that there are incentives for the build, building up of perfect privacy controls that can allow people to manage everything to exactly what they want and need. Um, but we, that can also um, kind of deflect from the fact that we do need a, a baseline law that kind of that cuts off the a baseline of exploitative practices and collection practices, and a focus on kind of transparency and tools uh, isn't going to do it. Well, it sounds like what's being proposed is a more complex version of the do not call list, right? The idea of being something like the regulatory intervention might be um, there's going to be a you know, a, you know privacy.gov or whatever or some or private equivalent and just say, okay, if a user sets some kind of privacy preference at this one location, uh, you know, sort of other sites have to sort of respect that without making them check a box. Um, is that, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how feasible that is so just logistically, um, but and and whether another panel. Yeah, uh, it sounds like it's one for the next panel. Uh, and I think we're out of time, so I, I, I'll, I'll hope we can bat that to a, a future panel. It's an interesting, interesting thought, though. Uh, please join me in, in uh, thanking our panelists. Thank you.